as she sat there in the church listening to the sermon, she wished she was dead. Jarena Lee was born February 11, 1783 into a free black family in Cape May, New Jersey. At age seven, her parents sent her away to work as a live-in servant for a white family. She never went to school, but she taught herself to read and write. Unchurched and not at all religious, Jarena Lee first encountered Christianity when she was 21 years old and heard a Presbyterian missionary reading from the Psalms. That year, she moved to Philadelphia, a city that was a haven for free persons of color, and then at that point, it was the second largest city in the English-speaking world after London. In Philadelphia, Jarena Lee took another domestic job and began attending revival meetings that were led by Richard Allen, who had been ordained the first black Methodist minister by Bishop Francis Asbury in 1799, and who later founded the A&E Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, after white Methodists in this country insisted on racially segregated worship services. Under Allen's preaching in 1804, Jarena Lee became convinced that she was, in her words, a wretched sinner. Bishop Richard Allen's teachings inspired her, but she continued to struggle with suicidal thoughts, and she fantasized multiple times about drowning herself. Uh, it was a dark time for Jarena Lee. She was deeply convicted of her sin. She wished she were dead, but she could not bring herself to believe that God in heaven would give up his son for her, that God could actually love her, or that Jesus had actually died for her. It was a sense of despair. It wasn't all that different from what those first surviving apostles, the eleven, would have felt upon realizing that Jesus Christ had died. They had pinned all their hopes on Jesus. Now he was dead. His movement seemed to have come to a sudden end. But then some women came to them and told them some news that they couldn't really believe, not from women. They brought the apostles, these women, a message that challenged them and confused them, a message that they would only embrace when they saw it with their own eyes, a message that all but one of the apostles would die in order to preserve, a message that Jesus wasn't dead anymore, but that he had bodily risen from death. Yet when those early followers of Jesus were first told this message, there was a huge problem, a problem with those first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. As we're looking at some of the leading women of the Bible, we're going to look at the apostles to the apostles, the first Christians to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. It's Luke chapter 24. I'm going to begin in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. 
Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. What do we see here? We see the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. And at that moment, it meant that the functional apostles, meaning witnesses to the resurrection, the apostles to the actual 11 apostles were all female. They were the witnesses proclaiming the resurrection of God's son. And this was a huge problem for the early church. Um, you know, why was it a problem? Well, first century Jewish historian Josephus, who is the most prominent of, of, of the Jewish historians from antiquity, he commented about this time on the common legal practice of his day among the Jews. He said, but let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at least, two or three witnesses, Old Testament, and those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Women were not qualified to testify in a court of law, no matter their character, because being women, they were viewed as having excessive boldness and excessive levity. And it wasn't just first century Jews for whom having female witnesses would have been a problem. The Roman pagan apologist Celsus, philosopher, he made quite an issue of the first evangelists. He, he held this against the Christians as evidence for why Christianity could not be trusted. Uh, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women, he said. Therefore, he argued, because the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus are based first and foremost on the primary testimony of only women, he assumed women to be hysterical and therefore unreliable. He argued that Christianity was therefore false. It was something that every Christian leader would have felt, somebody, you know, breathing down their neck, but you're trusting a bunch of ladies. Female witnesses were a major problem. In antiquity, women were extremely marginalized. Uh, whether Jewish or pagan context, the testimony of women was considered non-credible. And so the problem of these first apostles to the apostles being women was a big obstacle to the Christian faith, humanly speaking. Uh, and yet this is exactly what we should expect from Jesus because Jesus never approached things the way that was conventional within human society. You know, if Jesus were going to come to St. Louis and do a great, you know, healing uh, tour of St. Louis, you know how we would do that. We would first realize the dates Jesus is going to be in town. We'd rent the convention center downtown. Uh, we would then start taking applications from people with all sorts of diseases, uh, physical illness, mental illness, spiritual maladies, you know, bleeding trauma, whatever, you know, tuberculosis, leukemia, everything. And we'd then start getting, checking out their character references, and we would be choosing people who 
know how to hold down a job and take care of their families, upright, middle-class people, educated, um, you know, particularly, you know, if they had some professional experience, we would make sure that you'd find all of the people who were really worthy of a healing from Jesus. And that's not how Jesus did it. That's the way the world does things. Jesus chose all the wrong people to be part of his kingdom. He chose a prostitute. And he loved her so much that she poured an entire vial of expensive perfume upon Jesus, anointing him for his death. He chose a crooked tax collector, a Roman collaborator, first century mafiosi, to be an apostle. That was Matthew or Levi. He favored the poor over the rich. He defended a woman who was caught publicly in adultery. He praised the faith of a Roman centurion. That is, a pay, that is an occupying power, a soldier. And he excoriated the pastors of Israel for their moral laxness and hypocrisy. He chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And in the first century, women were considered foolish things in this world. And so Jesus does exactly what we, he would expect. The first witnesses were always going to be women within his plan. He, as God, could choose who would first see him. He's sovereign over all things, and of course, he's going to choose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. We should expect this from Jesus. And we know of these three women, as Jesus is turning the values of antiquity on its head, Jesus is naming these women here. We read that it was Mary Magdalene. And it was Joanna, and it was Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them. So there was a group of women who aren't named, and these three in particular, who are named as the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ. See, the God of the Bible knows his people by name. Jesus knows his followers by name. He knows his female followers by name. They are not less they should not recede. The categories of male and female, while still very much a part of our human makeup, make a whole lot less difference this side of the resurrection of Jesus than they did before. Because Jesus turns the world and its values on their head. For in Jesus, such categories become secondary at best or tertiary. You know, Jesus was giving first century women a voice that they were otherwise denied. He chose women to be the first Christians to carry this message that Jesus was risen, to carry that message to the 11 apostles, women becoming, therefore, functionally the apostles to the 11 actual apostles. They carried the message that Christ is risen. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. And interestingly, this is also how we can historically assess the validity, the truthfulness of this resurrection account. Um, even if we were to set aside for the sake of argument the authority of the Bible, the divine inspiration of the Bible, the fact that Jesus commissioned the apostles and told them that he would remind them of everything he had said and done, the fact that the Holy Spirit superintended the scriptures such that even Jesus says the very accent marks are placed there by God himself, superintending everything else, setting all of that aside for the sake of argument. Just as a historian, I can look at this account and realize Clearly, no one would have been motivated to make this up, not in, a, well, not in 1,800 years at least, because 
if they were going to make up a story of their religious leader rising from death, who would they have written in to be the witnesses? Peter, James, and John, you know, <laughs> the apostles. Um, they would have been trying to make themselves look good if this were this, this religious product of creating scriptures that aren't really true in order to bolster the power and influence of the religious leaders, then the apostles would have been the first to see. And they would have been, you know, all there, all present. They would have been believing. Remember, he said he's going to rise from the dead. They wouldn't have been dejected. If they were making this up, they would have done better. The only reason that we can conclude that they would have included this incredibly unhelpful information for the first 1,500 years of Christian history is because they believed it was true, and they believed God did it, and even if they didn't understand it at the time, they accepted the fact, and they wanted to pass on to Christians for all time what was actually reality. It would not have been Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, James's mom, who discovered the resurrection of Christ. This isn't the only embarrassing content in the New Testament. The disciples themselves, the apostles, look horrible throughout the pages of the four Gospels. I mean, you think about it. Peter, the chief of the apostles, Jesus calls him Satan at one point. I mean, how would you feel about it if Jesus Christ appeared today right now and said that I am Satan? You know, that's not good for religious leadership. That doesn't bolster your credentials. Um, but they put it in there, even though it was completely unhelpful because their concern was with the truth not to look good. They were trusting Jesus with the church, not their own cunning and intelligence. You know, think about all the stuff. They look like idiots. If they were going to make up a religion to advance their own authority among Christians and consolidate their religious and cultural power, they would have written a very different account. The apostles would have looked strong, courageous, and godly, not like idiots. And Jesus wouldn't have called Peter the devil. Peter wouldn't have denied Christ three times. You know, it's just... This, and the message of the resurrection would have been trusted to men, not to Mary, James's mom, Joanna, and Mary Magdalene, and the other women with them. So we can conclude that by the 60s AD, when these began to be written down, the apostles were perfectly fine looking bad so long as they were telling the truth. Um, in fact, 11 of the apostles went to their death rather than change their story. And they didn't need to hide from the fact that they learned the resurrection first from women, uh, from women that chose, were chosen by Jesus to be the first eyewitnesses. Their cultural uh, misogyny had been crucified with Christ. If Jesus chose women for such an honor, then they were going to shout it from the rooftops, or better yet, write it in the Bible where we just read it from. You know, would it have seemed like intellectual suicide at the time to Jews? Yes. To Romans? Yes. But it was true. The apostles didn't need to worry about results. Their concern was to pass on an accurate record of what actually happened in reality. It's a profound testament to the truthfulness of the gospel accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, that Christ chose women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and James's mother Mary, to be, uh, to carry the Easter message of the resurrection of Christ first. It's a profound testimony that this isn't make-believe, but it's actually factually accurate. And consider what it is that these women are telling us about. 
Uh, no one had really expected Jesus to rise at that point. Uh, they expected the resurrection to be at the end of history. And here, Jesus, by rising, what these women tell us, it, it's a massive inbreaking into history, and it changes the whole world in which we live because the early followers of Jesus, uh, suppressed and repressed and persecuted wherever they went, were not afraid to die because they knew that Christ had risen and Christ had said that, that he was the first fruits and that we too would rise if we believe in Jesus. And so it was those early Christians who lobbied and brought an end to the Roman practice of infanticide. It was the early Christians who pressured Rome to ban the gladiatorial hand-to-hand -hand combat that saw men torn apart by each other and by animals while the people cheered and rejoiced in their death. It was those early followers of Jesus who brought about an end to slavery, who, brought, who built the first hospitals, who normalized adoption, who combed the beaches and the forests, listening for the cry of a child so that they could take a, a Roman baby, pagan baby, put out for exposure to the elements and take them and raise them as their own, thereby growing the church and growing love. It was these early Christians who were not afraid to die because Christ had risen and promised they too would rise. It was them who, when the plagues and epidemics came down upon one, one uh, you know, city and antiquity after another, thousands of people dying, being pushed out into the streets to die, you know, it was the Christians who went and took care of them, offering them the basic palliative care that enabled so many people to survive what otherwise would be a fatal illness. By the, by the year 300, some estimates say that the Roman Empire, or at least the, the urban population of the Roman Empire, was already 25% Christian at a time when it was illegal. You could go to jail and you could go to your death for it. A quarter of the world at that time already calling upon Jesus over against persecution and repression because they were not afraid to die, because Jesus gave them, in the face of death and misery, Jesus gave them hope that death does not get the final word. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and James's mother Mary and the other women spoke of the resurrected Christ, the first people to declare that reality in all of human history. They are the mothers of the church, the apostles too, the actual apostles, that Jesus came back to life, they said. And if that's true, friends, it means the best is yet to come. If a billion years from now, the stars have gone out and all life on earth is dead and humanity is gone and there is no one there to ever remember that humanity ever existed billions of years from now everything we are and do will have been meaningless unless what these women Mary Magdalene Joanna and Mary the mother of James said was true is actually true if that's the case then everything we experience in this life is just the prelude, just the introduction. We have not yet even come to chapter one because God has an entire future on a resurrected earth, a transformed cosmos with liberated people to follow him forever. We all long for a happy ending. In fact, Hollywood executives will admit that very often when they, uh, you, know, you know, pilot a very dark, pessimistic, cynical movie where everybody dies and there's nothing happy at the end, they often feel pressured and will make the screenwriters add a new ending 
so that it turns out with some hope at the end because we don't like a reality that always ends with despair. We want hope. We were wired for hope. We need it. It's written into our DNA. And because God wrote that into our DNA, because he knew he would send Jesus, and Jesus would return and make everything right. It means Jesus can take a life filled with despair and transform it with Christian hope. He can take our weakness and he can use it to display his strength. He can take a life that the world considers worthless and use it to display his glory before all the world and change the world around them. It means the resurrection power of Jesus is able to do what human society cannot. Bishop Richard Allen's teachings inspired Jerina Lee free black housekeeper in Philadelphia who sat under his preaching in 1804. We've got a, a painting of Jerina Lee, if we could get that slide. Um, but she still continued to struggle with suicide, temptations, ideation. She, tried to, she thought about drowning herself on several occasions. It was a dark time for Jerina Lee. Through much prayer, Jerina finally felt that she did actually trust Jesus to save her. She finally confessed him as her savior. She accepted as a fact that Jesus had come to rescue her from her sins, that the gospel was true, even for her, that the blood of Jesus had washed her clean as well, and that she was now justified or declared righteous before God because Jesus' righteousness had been credited to her. His blood had been shed to pay for all of her sins, and she was then baptized as a Christian. In 1807, Lee began hearing what seemed to her to be the voice of the Holy Spirit. She writes, but to my utter surprise, there seemed a sound of a voice which I thought I distinctly heard and most certainly understood, which said to me, go and preach the gospel. I immediately replied aloud, Lord, no one will believe me. Again, I listened. And the same voice seemed to say, preach the gospel. I will put my words in your mouth and your enemies will become your friends. Lee then went to Bishop Allen and told him about it, but Allen said there was no provision for women preachers in the Methodist church. Lee suffered from ill health all her life, but her compulsion to proclaim Christ only grew. This was before the modern missions movement had come to the United States when the notion of a missionary was still a very foreign concept for many Christians. And so Jerina renewed her request to the bishop that a way be opened up for her to preach about Jesus to others. In 1817, she again requested her ecclesial license to preach, what Presbyterians would call licensure or commissioning as a lay preacher. Pointing to the resurrection account in Luke's gospel, she asked the bishop, did not Mary first preach the risen Savior? But bishop Allen refused again. Two years later, during a Sunday service at Mother Bethel AME Church, the scheduled preacher of Reverend Williams seemed to lose spirit in the middle of his sermon. He was preaching from Jonah, and he couldn't go on any further. And Lee describes what happened next. She writes, When, in the same instant, I sprang up, as by altogether supernatural impulse to my feet when I was aided from above, to give an exhortation on the very text which my brother Williams had taken. I told them I was like Jonah, for, I had been, for it had been then nearly eight years since the Lord called me to preach Christ to fallen sons and daughters of Adam's race. 
but that I had lingered like him and delayed to go at the bidding of the Lord and warn those who were as deeply guilty as were the people of Nineveh. She writes, I then sat down, scarcely knowing what I had done, being frightened. I imagined that this, for this indecorum, as I feared it might be called, I should be expelled from the church. But instead of this, Bishop Allen stood up to his feet in front of the entire assembly and related that I had called upon him eight years before, asking me to be permitted to tell others about Christ and that he had put me off, but that now he much believed that I was called to that work as any of the preachers present. Though Bishop Allen did not have authority to issue Jarena a formal license to preach, he did endorse her as an official traveling lay exhorter with the freedom to proclaim the gospel wherever God would lead her, and she was authorized to preach as a lay leader on the itinerant circuit and to lead prayer meetings. In 1820, Lee began proclaiming the risen Jesus wherever she could. She preached in open fields, town squares, even in her own home. Accompanied by a female traveling companion for her safety, she went on to proclaim Christ throughout the United States, including in the South, where she risked enslavement herself. Lee preached to mixed gatherings of blacks and whites alike, vulnerable and subject to danger. She seemed to have a confidence that God himself was with her, and her diary records one camp meeting in the slave state of Maryland where slaves had walked over 20 miles or more to hear her preach. She describes her return to preach the gospel in her own hometown of Cape May, New Jersey. She says, at the first meeting which I held at my uncle's house, there was, with others who had come from curiosity to hear the woman preacher, an old, rich, white man who was a deist, who was a man who held many slaves against their will, and who said he did not believe that colored people had souls. He was sure that we had none. He took a seat very near where I was standing, and he boldly tried to stare me down. But as I labored on in the best manner I was able, looking to God all the while, though it seemed to me I had but little freedom to preach, yet there went an arrow from the bent bow of the gospel and fastened in his till then obdurate heart. After I had done preaching, he went out and he called the people around him. He said that my preaching might seem a small thing, yet he believed that I had the worth of souls at heart. This language was different from what it was was a little time before, and he now seemed to admit that colored people did have souls, and that it was to these that I was chiefly speaking. And unless they had souls, whose good view I had in view, his remark must have been without meaning. He now came into my house, and in the most friendly manner he shook hands with me, saying that he hoped God had spared him to some good purpose. This man was a great slaveholder, and he had been very cruel thinking nothing of knocking down a slave with a fence stake or whatever might come to hand. From this time it was said of him that he became greatly altered in his ways for the better. At that time he was about 70 years old. His head was as white as snow, but whether he became a converted man or not, I never knew. The following week I had an invitation to hold a meeting at the courthouse of the county. When I spoke from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah about the Lord Jesus being despised and rejected and familiar with suffering. It was a, a solemn time, and the Lord attended to the word. I had life and liberty, though there were people there of various denominations. And here again I saw that same aged slaveholder 
who notwithstanding his age had walked three miles to hear me preach about Jesus. This day I spoke twice, and I walked six miles to the appointed place. There was a magistrate present who showed his friendship by saying in a friendly manner that he had heard of me. He handed me a hymn book, pointed to the hymn which he had selected, and when the meeting was over, he invited me to preach in a schoolhouse in his own neighborhood about three miles further from where I was. And during this meeting, one backslider was reclaimed. This day I walked six miles and preached twice to large gatherings, both in the morning and in the evening. The Lord was with me, and glory be his holy name. I next went six miles and held a meeting in a colored friend's house at 11 o'clock in the morning, and I preached to a well-behaved congregation. I, I have to wonder. There's got to be a story there. I preached to a well-behaved congregation, unlike the other, uh, of both colored and white people, and after the service, I again walked back, which was in all 12 miles in one day. And on the fourth day after this, in compliance with an invitation received by note from the same magistrate who had heard me at the above place, I preached to another large gathering where we had a precious time. Much weeping was heard among the people. And that same gentleman, now at the close of the meeting, gave out another appointment at the same place that day week. And here again, I had liberty to preach. There was a move of God among the people. Ten years from that time, in the neighborhood of Cape May, I held a prayer meeting in a schoolhouse a decade later, which was then the regular place of preaching for the Episcopal Methodists. After service, there came a white lady, a lady of great distinction, a member of the Methodist Society, and she told me that at the same schoolhouse ten years before, under my preaching, the Lord Jesus Christ had first awakened her to salvation and new life in him. And she rejoiced much to see me, and she invited me to her home with her, where I stayed until the next day. I hope you can appreciate how rare this kind of behavior would have been in antebellum America. This was New Jersey. It was the last northern state to abolish slavery, and then only very gradually there were still a lot of slaves in New Jersey at this time. And here, a rich white lady has walked, a rich white person has walked miles to hear a poor black woman tell them about Jesus. Here, a slave owner is convicted of treating black people as less than human. Here, a rich white society lady is inviting a poor, a poor black woman to come into her home to stay with her, to sleep in one of her beds, and to eat at her dining room table. In a part of antebellum America where many people of color were still held in bondage to slavery. Because to this prominent white society lady, Jerina Lee was the gift of God that had brought her hope in the resurrection of Christ, in his salvation, and God had used her to shepherd her soul into his church where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, but Christ is in all. And when you see this, you are seeing the church that Jesus rose from the dead to create where every Christian is gifted for ministry, where every Christian is called to preach the gospel, where every Christian is called to live their life in service to Jesus Christ because this life is so short and we have eternity ahead of us. Think of the suffering she went through, 
for 30 years serving as a traveling minister on, on circuit, traveling thousands of miles on foot. Her feet were sore. They bled because she was walking 12 miles a day to preach Jesus to all kinds of audiences, black and white alike, rich and poor alike. In one year alone, she says, she traveled 2,325 miles, most of that on foot, and preached 178 messages. Later in her life, she became the first black woman to publish an autobiography. In 1840, she joined the American Anti-Slavery Society to work toward the freedom of other people in color who were still held in bondage, and she died at the age of 72 in 1855, a decade before the end of slavery in this country. And she went to be with her Lord to await the resurrection of all things when everything is going to be made new. Though a free woman... She lived the life of a slave to Jesus. She didn't have a title. She didn't have an office. She was authorized to preach and lead prayer meetings as a layperson. She didn't have a salary to live off of. She didn't have a housing allowance. She started off poor and she died poor. She lived her life dependent upon those that she was serving. She risked being enslaved by traveling to the antebellum south to tell people about Jesus Christ. She, she truly took the lowest seat at the table and Jesus moved her up like those first women who were the apostles to the actual apostles, Jesus chose to bring the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and new life to humanity. Let's pray.